Okay. Um, all right, I'm going to put the note in the mailbox. Now we should go. (laughs) That odd noise you just heard is the sound of my friend Sam attacking the mailbox of a dangerous man. A mysterious man. Now, to be fair, we don't know for a fact that this man is currently dangerous. That's true, but we do know he's a former Baltimore cop who once roughed up a school teacher which led to the teacher bringing an aggressive policing lawsuit against the guy. And we know this guy has several very angry bumper stickers on the very menacing pickup truck that he keeps parked outside his house on a dead-end street. And, perhaps most terrifying to Sam and me, we know this cop's nickname is Mad Dog. So, in retrospect, maybe not the kind of guy whose house you want to skulk around. Maybe not. Now, I'm dying to tell you why Sam felt the need to wrestle with Mad Dog's mailbox. But first we need to go back in time a little bit. What happened was, one day, a little over a year ago, Mac here called me the morning after he went to a birthday party. This party was really weird for me. (laughs) I think I probably told you at the time... Everybody else in attendance was wearing, like, Hawaiian shirts. I guess it was a tropical theme. And I just felt really out of my element. So I did what I think anyone in that situation would do, which is I found someone else who looked out of place and essentially started talking his ear off. And if you think there couldn't possibly be anyone more out of place at a birthday party with a tropical theme than a tired middle-aged writer, Sam, think again. Oh, boy. Because... There was also a cop at this party. Ah. Now, a cop at a party, that's usually a bad thing. Usually, yeah, totally. But this cop was off-duty, just like a friendly guy who also lives in the building. And for the purposes of our story, we're going to call this guy E. So E and I start talking, outcast to outcast. It comes up that I'm from Baltimore. And as soon as he hears this, he like perks up and leans in. And he goes, ah, you're from Baltimore, huh? I guess that means you've heard the rumor. And like, as soon as he says this, I know exactly what he's talking about. Now, just in case everyone listening is not from Baltimore, the rumor goes like this. It's the night of August 14th, 1997, and the Baltimore Orioles are supposed to play a night game against the Seattle Mariners at their home ballpark, Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Just before the game is supposed to start, a handful of bulbs in the light tower above the first base dugout go out. So there's this long delay while they try to get the lights back on. And this delay goes on for two hours. And while it's happening, there are tens of thousands of fans in the stands clamoring for the game to start. Did you say fans in the stands? Yeah, that might hit people's ears weird in 2021, the idea of fans in the stands at an Orioles game. Which is fair, the Orioles are literally the worst team in baseball. Totally fair. 
In fact, as one national headline recently put it, the Orioles of 2021 are, quote, legendarily, historically awful. Other news outlets have used words like dreadful and disgrace. And this has been happening for a while. As of this recording, since 2017, the Orioles have lost 65% of the baseball games they've played. But believe it or not, back in 1997, the Orioles were one of the best teams in baseball. They actually led the American League in both wins and attendance. In 1997, a night game at Oriole Park at Camden Yards is a hot ticket. And to the fans in the stands the night of August 14th, the delay doesn't make sense. To a lot of them, it looks like there's more than enough light to play, but they don't get their wish. Shortly before 10 p.m., the game is postponed until the next day. Up to this point, everything we've told you is totally true. Everyone agrees and acknowledges there was a mysterious power outage on the night of August 14th, 1997. And this outage did cause the game between the O's and the Mariners to be postponed. The lights fans and players waited for all night are now shining underneath a sunny sky. Today, stadium electricians plugged away at finding the source of trouble. Why did a bank of... But what caused the power outage? Still trying to isolate that problem. It could be bad cabling. It could be a bad fixture. Uh, it looks like it's not a breaker problem because... Well, that's where the rumor comes in. Yes, this is where it starts to get weird. Because within a few days of the outage, this story starts to spread. And nobody knows where it came from, but suddenly it's everywhere. From the barstools of Pickles Pub, across the street from the stadium, all the way to the newsroom at the Baltimore Sun. And the rumor is that the Orioles faked the power outage. And that they allegedly did this because, allegedly... Shortly before game time, the night of the outage, someone in the Orioles' clubhouse looks around and notices that future Hall of Fame shortstop Cal Ripken Jr. is missing. And if Cal Ripken Jr. is missing, that's super, super strange. He hadn't taken a day off since 1982. He's known to this day throughout the baseball world as the Iron Man. Just two years earlier, in 1995, he'd broken Lou Gehrig's record for most consecutive games played. This was a record, I mean, there's most hits, most strikeouts, you know, those are impressive. But Gehrig's record was maybe the only one that everyone agreed would never be broken. And yet, Cal had done it. And this was a feat many journalists said even saved baseball. It was like, not hyperbole to say that. Because remember, back then, sport was on the brink. Fans were staying home in droves following a player strike and a canceled World Series. So the streak was super important. Now, just like it's no exaggeration to say that Cal saved baseball, it's also no exaggeration to say that he was the pride of Baltimore. Born and raised right there in Maryland, he's the son of a journeyman catcher in the Orioles minor league system. So the legend of this precocious scion of Oriole-dom had been building for years, ever since he was a teenager. And by 1997, he's a full-blown folk hero. He's won two MVP awards, he's made 15 All-Star teams, he's a big man with soft hands. He clobbers home runs, yet cradles erratic ground balls tenderly in his glove. And he's wholesome. 
It's 1997, the height of the sports drink craze, and Cal Ripken Jr. is literally the national spokesman for milk. He has steely blue eyes and a quiet voice he never seems to raise. Basically, he is Clark Kent and Superman at the same time. I love that part about tenderly cradling ground balls. It just <laughs> makes me feel kind of calm. I'm uh, going to admit, as a young child, I sometimes wished he would tenderly cradle me. <laughs> um, more on that soon. But for now, <laughs> Sam, I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here because back on the night of the outage in 1997, Cal was still in the midst of the streak, as Oriole fans called it. And on the night of August 14th, 1997, everyone just assumed he would extend his record by playing in his 2,432nd consecutive game. Because that's what Cal does. He just shows up day in and day out and plays the game the right way. The Oriole way, which is not a phrase Mac and I made up. It's a phrase that was actually used in the Orioles organization, a phrase to make things even more folksy that was coined by that journeyman catcher I referenced earlier, Cal's dad. So why is Cal suddenly missing an action on the night of August 14th, 1997? Well, legend has it, it's because Cal's on his way to the ballpark that night when he realizes he's forgotten something at his house. In some versions of the story, it's his glove, in others, his cell phone. But either way, he turns around, he goes home, and when he gets there, he finds his wife Kelly in bed with another man. And not just any man. The rapscallion in question is none other than Hollywood Hall of Famer and, until this moment, personal friend of the Ripkins, Kevin Costner. The postman himself. The postman ringeth. <laughs> no. <laughs> the pride of Waterworld. <laughs> In all seriousness, these guys were friends back then. Costner's star, in fact, originally rose largely on the strength of baseball movies like Bull Durham and Field of Dreams, although Cal and Kevin apparently met at the Washington, D.C. premiere of Dances with Wolves. Eventually, they were close enough that Kevin Costner occasionally took ground balls during batting practice before Oriole games. As the story goes, when Ripken allegedly discovers Costner in his bed, he and Kevin get into a fistfight. And afterwards, Cal is banged up. Nothing catastrophic, but it's bad enough that he doesn't think he can play in a baseball game that night. Which means that all of a sudden, after 15 years, the streak is suddenly in danger. So, allegedly, Ripken panics. He calls the Orioles, and he tells them they need to find a way to postpone the game. So that's the rumor. And as it spread, so did its implications. Let's face it, guys. If this ever turned out to be true, baseball is destroyed. The Orioles, Cal Ripken is Mr. Baseball. The streak no. is fake. I mean, it's a big story. If you're I, Kevin I, Costner and you were nowhere near Baltimore, But over the years... The rumor has been investigated. Trust me, if there was a police report out there, it would have been posted on social media by now. Yeah. It doesn't exist. Denied by both Ripken. I was definitely there. I was ready to play. And Costner. I've never been to their house. I couldn't even tell you what it looked like. And 
as fans we spoke with at a recent Oriole game made clear, ultimately, it was sort of forgotten. Does the phrase the rumor mean anything to you? The rumor? No. If I was to say to you the phrase the rumor, does that mean anything to you? Nah, not that I know of. Does the term the rumor mean anything to you? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Involves Kevin Costner. Nothing. So why are we talking about it more than 20 years later? It's because of what happened at that stupid tropical-themed birthday party right after E asked Mac if he'd ever heard the rumor. <laughs> right. Which is that I nodded and smiled, and E smiled too. And then he goes, well, it's all true. I'm Sam Dingman. I'm Mac Montandon. And from Blue Wire, this is The Rumor. A story about the truth and why it may or may not matter. So when Mac called me the morning after that birthday party and he told me this story about E, I was intrigued, but I was also freaked out. Cal Ripken is not just my favorite baseball player, he's my actual hero. I am 39 years old, and I still have a life-size cardboard cutout of Cal Ripken on the wall of my childhood bedroom. But there was something about Mac's story that made it seem like E's tip wasn't just casual party gossip. That's right. As a New York detective, E knew a bunch of other detectives all over the country. And one of them had told E he was there in Baltimore the night it all went down. So after the party, I figured it was worth giving E's guy a call to follow up. But then the guy caught a bad case of cold feet and didn't want to talk. Which, honestly, that was sort of a relief. Because Sam and I... We weren't sure how far down this rabbit hole we really wanted to go. So you're going to uncover the truth of this, basically. Well, we start out extremely conflicted about even trying. Mac and I decided, maybe before we get too carried away here, we should run this story by a respected journalist. Respected journalist, of course, being a phrase that has never been applied to either one of us. Fortunately, I do know a respected journalist. I grew up with her. Her name's Elise Spiegel. She's reported stories for some of the most revered news organizations in the world, like This American Life, The New Yorker, The New York Times. And she's the co-creator of the NPR podcast, Invisibilia, which is all about the unseen forces that shape human behavior. And also, she's from Baltimore. That's why we grew up together. And when we got on the phone with her, Elise told us that she's definitely heard the rumor. So somebody took a hedge clipper and they cut the electricity for the entire stadium. <laughs> that, was, that was what my dad told me. Now, that was a version of initiating the power outage that neither Mac or I had heard before. And when we heard it, we got really excited. Maybe we're going to find a rusty old pair of hedge clippers in a safety deposit box somewhere in suburban Maryland. Totally. This was going to be our, like, big Lebowski toe. <laughs> Just like the image around which the whole story is built, right? Well, wrong. I need to like pause here and just emphasize that 
you cannot believe any stories that come from my father. Um, but they're all thing. highly entertaining and they're all not true. Like some of his stories I've gone on to do documentary work about. So I know for a fact that they are not true. Um, you've like, you've like I've actually I have verified this. There, there have been months long. But then I told Elise about the tropical themed birthday party and the Kevin Costner-ness of the rumor. And the fact that, while it may not have been caused by a set of hedge clippers, the outage was totally real, and the Orioles have never provided a clear explanation of what exactly happened. That was all news to Elise. She just assumed the whole story was something her dad had made up. And this piqued her interest. I have to say, just the fact that there was a day when the whole stadium got shut down, like that's, that's more than I expected. I'm like, oh, maybe there's some element of it that is true. So we tell Elise that we're leaning towards trying to figure out whether the rumor really is true. But we also confessed that we were feeling nervous, like really nervous. Like really nervous. Why are you extremely conflicted? I guess I just am unsure. What is it like 20 some years later? Is it? Is it foolish and mean even to like mm-hmm. reopen these wounds, these potential wounds? Like what will the world gain from mm-hmm. knowing this is true? This is a question Mac and I had actually been agonizing about ever since the birthday party. Did we really want to dredge up this gnarly old story, which does seem sort of far-fetched on the surface and which was probably really painful for Cal and Kelly Ripken and Kevin Costner to deal with back then. But as we were poking around, we discovered that we're not the first journalists, respected or otherwise, to look into this. Kevin Costner and the Orioles, boy, what a day that was. That's former sports talk radio host Chuck Booms, the guy you heard earlier claiming that if the rumor is true, baseball would be, quote, destroyed. He made those comments in a 2001 interview with Sean Hannity and Alan Combs on Fox News. When Sam and I started looking into the rumor, we quickly came across this weird story that seemed hard to believe about Kevin Costner doing an extensive interview about the whole situation with these two shock jocks, Kevin Kiley and Chuck Booms. But it totally happened. And at the time, it made some headlines. Hence Chuck's appearance on Fox. So we tracked down Chuck Booms, and I got on the phone with him. And he told me that this whole thing started with actually a previous segment that he and his co-host Kevin Kiley did on their radio show in 2001. That was four years after the power outage, and Cal Ripken Jr. had just announced his retirement. Everyone is all emotional. He's Cal Ripken. He's a good-looking dude. He never does anything wrong. He's Captain America. He's G.I. Joe. He's Apple Pie and Chevrolet. You know, just the endless dribble about how he's Mr. Perfect, and I don't find any human to be perfect, including me. Those feelings are the reason that right in the middle of this 2001 segment about Cal's retirement, Chuck decides it's time to talk about the rumor. We're doing, I believe, the story of celebrating him as the Iron Man of all time, you know, Captain Perfect. And I said, yeah, not to me, because... The streak's a fraud anyway, because everybody knows they had somebody take a chainsaw 
you know, I make it a little more colorful and funny. Somebody took a chainsaw, uh, you know, like a scene out of Die Hard, and they went down the manhole cover and cut the power cables to Camden Yards, and then I went through the whole thing. And So, uh, live know, on the air, right in the middle of this show about Cal Ripken's retirement, Chuck Booms runs through the version of the rumor that he's heard. Ripken turning around because he forgot something, discovering Costner with his wife, the fistfight, the whole thing. And Chuck says, while he's telling this story, Kylie is basically on the other side of the studio, waving his finger back and forth across his throat, like, Booms, shut up. And he goes, this is the most cockamamie thing you have ever done on this radio show, and you've had some doozies. I said, oh, yeah? Open those phones up and watch how many people call, especially from the Baltimore area, that will call and tell you this is exactly what went on, and that's when it happened. The lights on the phone board in the studio go haywire. It lit up like a Christmas tree. Chuck, you're 100% right. Yes, it's real, I can tell you. A guy called up and said, I can tell you right now, I am friends with the guys who were told to go cut the power. And he said, and it was only to the stadium and a few other ancillary things around, which is why people couldn't figure it out. Then comes the Los Angeles calls. And now it takes on a whole nother place. We have people that call up and say... I golf with Costner, I've worked out with him, I play tennis with him, and he doesn't want people to know, and da-da-da, and now, and now Kylie's going, oh my God, what the hell is going on? I said, I told you. So this goes on the entire show. So at the end of the show, the phone rings, and it's our boss. Tom Lee is his name, and Tom says, I just got off a 20-minute phone call with Kevin Costner. And we're like, well, get the hell out of here. And he says, no, no. He heard the entire thing, and he's furious. He demanded that he get an hour of time to come on and tell his side of the story. And I almost fainted. And that is how Kevin Kiley and Chuck Booms end up talking to Kevin Costner live on the air about the rumor. He called and he came on. And boy, was it eye-opening. The postman returneth. <laughs> I'm determined to make this work, Sam. The postman ringeth againeth. Again. <laughs> we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I happened to be going to work yesterday, and as I was going to work, uh, a friend of mine called me and said, they're really dogging you on, on, uh, on this sports network. And I said, what? About what? Not sports guys. Sports guys are my guys. They're not dogging me. <laughs> and they go, no, they're dogging you about Kelly Ripken and Cal. That is Kevin Costner. 
calling in to Kylie and Booms in 2001. Two days earlier, remember, Kevin, Kylie, and Chuck Booms spent hours fielding calls from listeners claiming that the rumor is true. Something in me snapped. It really snapped. I thought, you know what, I'm never going to clear my situation, but I'm just going to let people know that this is, it's wrong. I've never been to their house. I couldn't even tell you what it looked like. I've seen Kelly twice in my life, and if you added up the minutes, it would probably be about 10 minutes. And anybody who would say that, this police officer, this guy who had dinner with a person, some taxi cab guy, if they say that, they're less than honest. They're liars. Now, here's where this part of the story gets tricky. That clip of Kevin is from the Chuck Boom segment on Hannity and Combs that Mac told you about earlier. And it's one of only a handful of clips that survive from an old recording of the actual Kylie and Booms broadcast that Kevin called into. Now, Mac and I did successfully track down that recording, and we were excited to play you several other clips of Costner. But shortly before we went into production on this episode, after initially sharing that audio with us, Fox Sports Radio suddenly and mysteriously blocked us from using the tape. In the words of our contact at Fox, quote, I've checked up the line and have received clear direction that this audio is not something we can grant, end quote. So when it comes to what was said in the rest of the interview, we have to rely on Chuck Booms's memory. And according to Chuck, this appearance did not go well for Kevin Costner. According to Chuck. According to Chuck. The whole thing just got crazier the longer he was on. I said, Kevin, I'm just going to ask you straight out. He goes, go ahead, Booms, ask me anything. I said, have you ever been to Kelly and Cal Ripken's home when Cal wasn't there? And it was dead silent. And he says, what do you mean by that? I said, it's pretty straightforward, Kev. Have you ever been over to the Ripkins' home with Kelly when Cal wasn't home? And he kind of like chuckled uncomfortably. And Kevin Kiley said, all you have to do, we had the date of the power out. Where were you on that day? And he said, I just can't be sure. So, as Kevin Tiley said, it sounds like he's trying to get his toe as close to the pool water as he can, but not get in the pool. He's acknowledging the smoke, but denying the fire. That's it. That's the best way to put it. And, and not only acknowledge the smoke, he added to it. Now, I got to say, that's a pretty good point from Mr. Booms, because look. I'm not a public relations professional, Sam, as you know, but I can't help feeling like calling into Kylie and Booms was a colossally bad move on Kevin Costner's part. Yeah. Regardless of whether or not the rumor's true. I mean, he's just walking right into the trap of these two shock jocks. Mm-hmm. Costner gets nothing out of giving this story any more oxygen, especially in 2001, four years after the fact. But for Kylie and Booms, it's, it's like radio gold. Yeah. And it is notable that he never explicitly denied the rumor. According to Chuck. According to Chuck. According to Chuck. But, yeah, Costner's possibly ill-advised segment on Kylie and Booms 
seems like it breathed fresh life into this story that was by then four years old. And that is possibly what leads to the only other serious attempt we're aware of to investigate the rumor. Generally back then, because this was 20 years ago, uh, pretty much our only two inputs were what people forwarded us in email and what search terms people were entering into our search engines. David Mickelson is the co-founder of Snopes.com, which has been investigating the truth behind rumors, conspiracy theories, and urban legends for decades. And actually, his 2001 article, The Costner of Love, good title, Dave, that's actually where I first read about the rumor. David told us he's been fascinated by stories like the rumor since the earliest days of the internet. In fact, before he became a writer, he was a computer scientist. And that was back when that was like a fairly unique job to have. That gig gave David access to the Incoate World Wide Web and all its chat room Michigas. I was kind of the, the one person who was interested in doing more than just kind of discussing or speculating. I was, you know, interested in like, is there really anything to this claim that Walt Disney was frozen when he died, you know, cryogenically preserved, you know, is there any evidence of this, you know, can you confirm or deny them? So I just started doing that. Eventually, that work became Snopes.com. And in 2001... When David started seeing an influx of reader emails about the rumor, he decided it was worth looking into. Years of experience doing this kind of work, you know, taught me, like, don't ever reject anything, you know, out of hand just on the basis that it sounds ridiculous. You need to do it, at least do some checking into it. David did check into the Ripken Costner rumor to an extent. He figured the easiest approach would be to try to confirm whether or not Ripken was actually at the ballpark on the night of the outage. These days, that's not a very tall order, of course. Almost everyone in the ballpark is carrying a smartphone in their pocket, snapping photos of players taking batting practice and signing autographs before the game. But back in 2001, not so much. So when it came to proving Ripken's presence on the field, David was stuck. You know, run into the the problem, as they say, is absence of evidence, evidence of absence. Of course, eventually, there was evidence that he was there that day. That is true. Like Costner, Ripken has directly addressed the rumor during a radio interview. In 2008, he went on NPR's Talk of the Nation to promote his book, Eight Elements of Perseverance. And during the broadcast, he was asked if there's any truth to the rumor. Cal's response was classic Ripken, measured, calm, quietly confident. Well, I mean, uh, it's easy to check um, the facts on that one. I remember it very well. The uh, bank of lights went off, and uh, Randy Johnson was pitching for the for the uh, Seattle Mariners, and we were deciding what to do about that. Was there enough visible light out there to actually see a guy throwing 100 miles an hour? And the bank was just over our dugout. And I physically went out and tested the uh, the lights or whatever else for the umpires. So I was in discussion with the umpires. We went out there and threw. I was definitely there. I was ready to play. And I'm sure I was on camera a number of times being out in the field. In the end, David declared the story false. Mostly because in his mind, it just never passed the sniff test. If you looked in the details of what, you know how and why the game was canceled, it's like... 
this is kind of a lame plot in that he made it really iffy. Like, it's just one bank of lights and they kind of got some of them working. I mean, couldn't you guys have blacked out the whole stadium? I mean, if this was an actual directed conspiracy to preserve his streak, he needed a really better plan than this one. So at this point, Mac and I are sort of at a crossroads. So far, we have one maybe reliable source at a tropical-themed birthday party claiming that the rumor is true. We have a shock jock who parlayed the rumor into several hours of hot talk radio, but didn't exactly prove anything. And we have David, in whose judgment the story seems a little far-fetched. Right, but then, not long after we spoke to David, we read a BuzzFeed story that revealed David's unfortunate history of plagiarism. According to that piece, Mickelson published over 50 articles containing material that he ripped off from places like The Guardian and the LA Times. He's since been suspended by Snopes and has apologized for his, quote, lapse in judgment. So where does that leave us? Is there some kind of dark, potentially baseball-destroying secret lurking in the shadows of this mysterious power outage? And if there is, can we actually find it? And... What do we do about this other nagging feeling? The more we thought about it, poking around at the foundations of the mythology associated with our favorite baseball team, that felt a lot like poking around at the foundation of our actual identities as human people. So after our interview with David, I went back and I listened to our conversation with Elise Spiegel again. And there was something about it that I had forgotten. It was after she told us the version of the rumor she heard about the hedge clippers when she asked us why we were feeling conflicted about the story. One of the other things I've been talking about with Mac is I've really moved away from baseball fandom over the mm -hmm. last few years and don't really feel like it, it serves me in the way that it used to. And mm -hmm. the conflict for me is I'm also fearful that it would be the metaphorical last set of hedge clippers to my connection to the game. Great, great. I see what you're saying. I remember feeling surprised when those words came out of my mouth because they felt true, but I wasn't really sure why. So between interviews with sources, Mac and I started talking on the phone about what the Orioles, Cal Ripken, and the streak really mean to us. So another thing that came up for me when I was thinking about this is I, I have been looking recently at these old pictures from family vacations that we used to take uh, to the beach in the summer. And in every single one of these pictures, I must have looked at, you know, 20 of them. Mm -hmm. I am wearing an Orioles t-shirt. <laughs> but this is the thing, Mac. It's never the same Orioles t-shirt. <laughs> oh, my God. Which means wow. that my entire wardrobe was just Cal Ripken shirts or just Oriole shirts. That's how big a deal this was to me. Like, I, baseball was my whole personality. <laughs> right, right, right. Right around the time we talked about Sam's many t-shirts, I'd been thinking about my earliest associations with the Orioles, which are from when I was eight years old and watched them lose the 1979 World Series to the Pittsburgh Pirates. One day... Before Sam and I got on the phone, I'd watched all of game one of that series on YouTube. Within an hour or two after watching it, I felt physically so bad. Like, 
I didn't know what my wife was like, is it food poisoning? What's going on? She could hear me like retching into a bucket in the back of the apartment. <laughs> um, and I didn't know what the fuck was going on. After the break, we try to figure out what the fuck was going on. So what was it about digging into this story that made me retch into a bucket? I have a theory. (laughs) I think it might be because this is kind of an oogie story. Yeah. Because on the one hand, you and I are not the paparazzi. We do not care whether or not Kelly Ripken and Kevin Costner had an affair. That's between them. But on the other hand, we do care if there was a conspiracy to uphold the legend of the Iron Man. And according to the rumor, it was this alleged love triangle business that led to that conspiracy, which means we kind of have to look into it. And I think, like, it's also worth noting here that, like, you and I were not in QAnon. Like, we generally don't care about (laughs) conspiracy theories. Um, I mean, we care about them in the sense that they're ruining the world. But like this one, it's personal. Very personal. For kids like us, Cal Ripken wasn't just a baseball player. He was the personification of integrity. And if all that was based on a lie, well, as we talked about repeatedly in these phone conversations, that would be a problem. Because it was more than t-shirts. The Oriole way was the mythology we organized our entire lives around. There was something about the reliability of that presence that was so comforting, like on a cellular level. (laughs) I think you might be right. (laughs) Yeah. So my great named friend, Plato Hieronymus, and I, um, (laughs) we had a game called Name That's Dance. And one person would just contort their body in whatever position, and the other one would guess. We would play nine-inning wiffle ball versions of games, (laughs) and, like, it it would be the Orioles against, you know, the Yankees or Red Sox, the biggest rivals. And we'd know the batting orders, and and we'd know the stances so well that we could go through it. It's just mind-boggling. I am now now completely gobsmacked (laughs) because... (laughs) My version of that is that I would stand outside in front of my house with a bat. The only difference here is I was doing this friendless. (laughs) And there would be a car parked in the front of the house, like a neighbor's car. So I would stand there and I would look at my reflection and I would check my reflection to make sure I had the batting stance perfect, whether I was imitating a member of the Orioles or a member of the opposing team that they were going to be playing that night. And I would adopt this imaginary broadcaster voice and kind of whisper a broadcast into the crook of my shoulder and simulate, as you said, an entire game that way. I would stand out there for hours doing this. To the point that, you know, like, neighbors would be walking down the street and see me, to their eyes, staring into a car with a baseball bat, whispering to myself and probably think, like, what's what's cooking with that Dingman kid? Oh, Lord. I hope he's okay. 
I think then when you're a baseball fan, part of the appeal was these people seemed not that different than you. And there was like, the, even mm. if you were just sort of tricking yourself, you could sort of start to believe that if you just did what they did enough, maybe you could yes. have a similar life and career. Yes. Like if you literally could emulate their physical movements, it would mm. somehow grant you access to the life that they seemed to lead. As cringe-inducing as these memories may have been, they were also from a long time ago. As I mentioned earlier, I am 39 years old, Mac is 50. What possible relevance could this ridiculous baseball story from 25 years ago have on our lives now? Well, I hate to say it in light of that BuzzFeed article, but the guy with the answer to that question turns out to be David Mickelson. Because... He hasn't just been debunking rumors and urban legends all these years. He's been trying to figure out why people are drawn to them in the first place. A lot of what drives conspiracy theories is people trying to make sense of things that otherwise make no sense to them. It's kind of like a way of people regaining control over something they have no control over. You know, it's, it's present in all of our religions. People want to think that there is a reason and a purpose behind things. And that was it. For Mac and me, Cal Ripken and the Baltimore Orioles were our reason and purpose. Now, it seemed clear that there was at least some reason to wonder about that purpose. And that left us with some tough questions. Could we find the fire at the center of Chuck Booms's cloud of smoke? Could we investigate the rumor without a Mickelson-shaped cloud hovering over our judgment? And what would actually happen if Sam and I uncovered the truth? I think my biggest fear in this project would be to discover that baseball no longer feels relevant to my life. And that it really all is all just a, a giant wool over the eyes on the part of these teams who are basically private corporations that sell us merchandise under the guise of civic pride, and that they did perpetrate this conspiracy because they knew we would fall for it because we love this myth too much to let it go, and that that would be a nail in the coffin in my, my drift away from this thing that used to create all of the meaning in my life. I think that's my biggest fear. <laughs> Well, when you put it like that, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, low stakes. Just as Sam and I were in the midst of processing all this, we tracked down a guy named Doug. And by tracked down, I mean a friend of mine gave me Doug's phone number. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to be, you know, <laughs> podcast worthy, but I'm, but I'm happy to try Doug's a lawyer in Baltimore, and just like Sam and me, he grew up idolizing Cal Ripken. But unlike Sam and me, he actually kind of knows Cal Ripken personally. Like, they've hung out a few times at ball games and fundraisers and other events around the city in recent years. Now, Doug has not only heard the rumor, he actually doesn't think it's that far-fetched. I bet he beat the shit out of Kim Acosta, and... <laughs> I bet he beat him within an inch of his life because there's no way Cal's losing that fight. I mean, Cal is, if you, you've seen him, he is enormous. So he's a big, powerful guy. 
it's a raw intensity. It's sort of under the surface. Yeah, I mean, and it doesn't change how I think about him at all. It just probably makes him a little bit more human because I'm like, I think I would do the same thing if I were him, I guess. That idea actually made sense to me. I am no longer a kid looking up to a mythic god. Hell, I'm not even sure anymore that mythic gods exist. In a way, if Cal had pummeled Costner in a jealous rage, his flaws would make him only more human to me, and in that way, easier to understand, to identify with. These complicated feelings were running through me as Doug spoke, but there wasn't time to think too deeply about them at that moment, because Doug was just warming up. I'm happy to try and put you in touch with the the Angelos. I don't know if you've ever spoken to them or wanted to speak to them or if you're trying to get maybe more of a non-owner. We would love that. We love it. I mean, we haven't. The Angelos family Doug's referencing there owns the Orioles and has since 1993. So if there was a conspiracy to protect the legacy of Cal Ripken, there's a good chance they'd know about it. And the fact that Doug has a connection to the family and at least some connection to Ripken, made the next thing he said extremely podcast-worthy. I have it on, you know, fairly good authority that, it, that it's true. And that is how Mac and I ended up on a quest to uncover the truth about a 25-year-old rumor, and, for better or for worse, about ourselves. It was a journey that would eventually lead to my wrestling match with a dirty cop's mailbox and a whole lot more. I, you know, I don't know, guys, exactly what I can say on this subject. This is thin ice for me. Cal would want to have a conversation. He'd say, hey, you want to hang around after the game? I'm like, yeah. Everybody go home and we'd be in the clubhouse, you know, uh, maybe, maybe having a few adult beverages. When I pause it at the 10-second mark, just above Ripken's right hand, the conspiratorial-minded person could see a reddish mark there. Yes, an abrasion, some might say. Perhaps an abrasion. When I showed my wife, she thought it was, quote, knuckle shadow. Well, I hope you guys, you stuff that's not going to get me in a courtroom or anything. <laughs> uh, hey, you guys fine. sound very trustworthy. I trust you guys. Tell me when we're no longer recording. Um, I can stop the recorder if you would like. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I think it's funny. And <laughs> what I think is interesting, too, is that you're all in your feelings about it. This is, this is a good idea, right? I don't know what else we can do. We're not doing anything terrible. We're not doing anything terrible. That's all coming up on this season of The Rumor. Hosted, produced, and written 
by Sam Dingman and Mac Montandon. Editing and mixing by Sam Dingman. Research and archival by Mariam Khan. Booking help by George Noble. Production coordination by Devin Shepard. Additional production support from Isabel Jocelyn and Shweta Surendran. The Rumor is executive produced by Peter Moses and John Yales. We used archival audio from Fox News Channel's Hannity and Combs, NPR's Talk of the Nation, and Baltimore's WMAR2 News. And our outro music is Farewell Transmission by Songs Ohio. We'd also like to extend our special thanks to Adrian Bain, Catherine Crawford, Heather Chaplin, Jason DeLeon, Matt Haber, Anjali Kosla, Miles Corman, Nick Markovich, Una and Daphne Montandon, Odelia Rubin, and Alan Smith for story consultation, leads, and moral support. Thank you for listening to The Rumor. If you like the show, please help spread the word by giving us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts, telling two friends, and don't forget to follow and subscribe in whatever app you're using to listen. Listen.